I have no doubt if the Australian Army weren't there in 99, 2000, and especially those years, there would have been a lot more deaths at the hands of the Indonesian militia, for sure. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you're going to funerals quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. I'm Sharon Maskell-Dare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. Today, we meet Chad McLaren, a former member of the Royal Australian Infantry who deployed to East Timor before becoming a medic and then transferring to the Royal Australian Navy. Today, in his civilian life, he's dedicated to supporting veterans. And in fact, today we've come to the Torrens Parade Ground in central Adelaide to record his interview and get a, a sense of his life and what he's achieved. So, Chad, thanks very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for the invite. So tell us a bit about where you grew up and perhaps some of the influences that you were exposed to in your early life. Yes, yeah, so I grew up uh, on Kangaroo Island, south of uh, Adelaide. My grandfather was a, a soldier settler farmer over there. Went over there in 1960 and um, most of the uh, farmers over uh, on the West End in that period of time were all soldier settlers. So they all were in World War II together and uh, obviously formed a great bond over there. Yeah, and we left uh, when I was about 10 years old and we went to Woomera. Dad worked for the Department of Defence up there and uh, we got to see the, the might of the US Air Force with the uh, spy base up there, which was a very interesting place to, uh, to grow up for a young fella. So were you aware that you're actually growing up in the middle of an intelligence community at that time? Well, you don't because uh, I guess you don't see it. You see the Navy uniforms and, and the Air Force uniforms, but as a 10-year-old, you know, you don't really think that uh, you're in the middle of, you know, some sort of Cold War kind of situation. What inspired you then to, to join up yourself? I was at university and I was um, 1027th Royal South Australian Regiment as a uh, young infantry soldier. And yeah, once I um, went to Kapuka and I was uh, sort of like, well, I think this might be, might be for me. This is sort of like fitness and discipline and what have you. And I think that was the right call for me at that time when I was about 20, 21 years old. So what was it about the kind of army life, the army ethos that really attracted you at that time, do you think? Well, probably, maybe it's what I needed, probably. I probably needed some discipline and some focus and direction. And, uh, of course, uh, the Army's great at doing that. So, yeah, I think it was a very good uh, decision of to join up uh, with the regular Army and um, move over to Six Aria. Now, we've had lots of people come on Life on the Line who've talked about their Kapuka experiences, but, but what was yours like? Well, Kapuka was um, was interesting. You know, you rock up at 2 a.m. and you have people yelling at you, standing, you know, three ranks, and you've never heard what rank is and... Everyone's looking around at each other going, what, what? And they just physically manhand you and put you in your three ranks. Within a couple of days, you know what all the terminology is where you've got to, otherwise, uh, you know, you're going to find it pretty tough. I enjoy the fitness, I enjoyed uh, the structure of the place, and I still enjoy structure in my life today. So maybe those early Kapuka days have implanted some sort of desire for structure on my life but um, I have nothing but positive memories from that Kapuka experience. And then you settled into army life. What were those first few years like? When did I transfer across to the regular army? 2000 and um, 
October 1999 and then we basically as soon as I got to Brisbane to 6RR we were um, preparing to deploy to East Timor so there was wasn't really uh, any time to settle in it was uh, straight into kind of operational readiness and the tempo was pretty full on and then we went over um, April 2000. So as a young man at that time what did you know about East Timor and indeed what did you know about Indonesia as well? Yeah very very little. The Army was good. They gave us a good briefing and a good education of the country, what to expect. Obviously, you know, we, we learned the local language and what have you. But as a 21, 22-year-old, no, not a lot not of knowledge of uh, East Timor, no. What did you think you were going into then? What were you told about the mission and what you'd be doing over there? They painted a good picture of of what it was like. I don't think there was any sugar coating. There was uh, obviously, it was a pretty horrendous scene over there from September 99 with Interfet and, and what the Indonesian army were doing at that time. We had full briefings of what, what was going on there. So we would, knew we were going into something pretty ordinary. Were you afraid? Were you conscious of the fact you were exposing yourself to risk by going on that deployment? So, you know, when you're 22, you don't really can, sort of fear too much. There was definitely a bit of probably anxiety around maybe what was gonna happen, of course. But as far as, you know, being kind of scared or, or whatever, you, I, I, that, probably not that kind of uh, sense of that kind of feeling, but more kind of apprehension and anxiety of what, what are we going to see here. Once we sort of rolled out into the area of operations, it was uh, kind of pretty easy to kind of settle into, you know, operational tempo, what we had to do. And what did you have to do? What was your kind of day-to-day -day routine like? From April 2000 was basically patrolling and keeping the, uh, the area our area of operations safe from any kind of militia activity that had come across the border from uh, Indonesia. And at that point, they were still quite active in many areas. So patrols were very frequent. We had a strong presence in that area. Obviously, we had a full battalion in that space. So, you know, by the time we left, basically the activity kind of uh, had ceased, which we were pretty pleased about. So tell us about some of the prevailing memories you have about deployment. Well, I think definitely the people, Sharon, I think, you know, patrolling around in some of the areas that basically no, no English was spoken, uh, there was no electricity, there was no running water, but the people were just so lovely. The smiles on their faces when they saw us, they'd give their shirts off their back if we were cold, the food, they would just look after us. I remember one, one time we were camping at a school and all of a sudden this group of sort of six or seven people you know, grabbed us, took us down to their kind of local church on the top of this ridge. It was all full of candles. They, had, they made us sit at the front row, which is the seats were very, very small. But we all sat on the front row. They gave us coconuts and we're drinking out of the coconuts. And I mean, they just couldn't be any more nicer people. And that's, you know, one of the memories. And we got to some some villages and, you know, the chief had moved out of his house and said, here, well, not really a house, they were little huts, grass huts. and you guys are in here so we're saying chief oh, i'm sleeping on the ground outside it's like well okay well there's, there's some thank for that and we were just so appreciated and that's my lasting memory that, that those people were just so thankful and beautiful and appreciative of us being there did you have a real sense that you were changing things for them that you were contributing directly to their safety to their security yeah absolutely i mean uh, I have no doubt if the Australian Army weren't there in 99, 2000, especially those years, there would have been a lot more death at the hands of the Indonesian militia, for sure. We were basically, we'd get reports where they were, we'd, be, we'd kind of be chasing them, and then as soon as they knew we were on their tail, they were going back to Indonesia. So we basically just chased them back over the border, and then they just stopped coming after a while. So we had the night operations, with the, we'd set up ambushes on the border. The Indonesian army on the other side of the river knew we were there, so that obviously tipped them off that we were there, and that presence was enough for them to just, they just gave up and they stopped coming. 
Was there a sense though of risk then, if you were exposed to the fact that you had the militia there at any time, you didn't know where they, where they were? That, that must have given you a, a sense of having to be constantly on alert. Yeah, that, and, and that's a good point. That, that, that military, that, that training that the Australian Army gives you, you set up an ambush, you set up properly, and if someone wants to come through it and put the people at risk that you're trying to look after, uh, well, look, there's not much you can do about it. If they want to come over and hurt people, hey, that's, that's their thing and we're going to do what we've got to do. So when you came back from Timor, you decided to change corps and become medic. So how did that come about? The medical profession was always interested in me from a younger age, coming obviously the uh, pinnacle of your career with infantry soldiers going overseas and protecting uh, people from an oppressor in a, in a foreign country, which I did. So it was a kind of thought, okay, well, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And uh, yeah, medical was, was it for me. What was it then about the medical profession that really attracted you? Was it that you wanted to care for people or, or was it something about just being hands-on and, and really quite practically oriented? No, I'm not very practically oriented, uh, Sharon. Um, no, I was definitely helping people. That's what, I mean, ever since I transferred across as a medic in 2003, that's what I've been doing ever since in, in military and in civilian life. So, yeah, it is about helping people. I get a real you know, sense of achievement about caring for people and making sure they're cared for. And what was your training like? I mean, having been taught how to handle weapons, how to be part of a, of a section as an infantryman, that change across to being a medic, what really stood out to you as, as the shifts that you had to make, perhaps psychologically, in terms of performing a different role within a military environment? The Navy medical training is a bit like an apprentice system where you go in and do sort of eight months worth of quite intense medical training. It involved a lot of theory and a lot of practical it's quite intense. I mean, the, the information required to know and required to reproduce is significant. And then you go off and do um, off to your hospital in Sydney, off to the HMAS Penguin at the Navy Medi Medical uh, Hospital, Navy Hospital, and uh, put that training to uh, into place. My time at um, the Navy Hospital was fantastic. I had some great mentors there. Then it came time to go back down to HMAS Service for four months of intense training and to become an advanced medic. And that was just fantastic to be able to consolidate all that initial training and learn more. Then we went to sort of Frankston Hospital, we went to the Victorian Ambulance Service. That time I had as medic training was obviously um, integral to the time after my Navy career. It just uh, set me up very, very well. What was it though about being a medic that you enjoyed so much because clearly that then ended up becoming your long-term career even after you left the military which we'll come to in a moment what was it about being a medic that appealed to you so much as well as just the helping people factor was there something about the kind of the art of being a medic that really worked yeah. for you yeah I guess it's not everyone's uh you know forte but one thing I did enjoy was you know, on a HMS Newcastle with 220 people, there's two or three medics and when things go wrong, you know, that people look at you. So I quite enjoy the fact that from, you know, wherever it is, it might be on a mine site, it might be on a ship, it might be in a hospital, it might be anywhere. When it's your turn, it's your turn and there's only a couple of people probably in that room that could actually do it. So it's, um, it's a good skill to be able to have that, to be able to, when things go wrong, you know, you can actually do something. And just tell us as well the difference between Army and Navy, given that you lived that experience of changing from one service to another. What are the differences between them? I get asked that all the time, what was the best one? I don't think there was a best one. They're, they're totally different. They perform totally different roles. I like to say that I was, as a 21-year-old, I was the Army infantry. That was the perfect grounding for me. And to do my time there 
was very important to shape the person that who I become, and then to have that experience to then go into the Royal Australian Navy, and where work is a little bit more autonomous, especially uh, at sea, you don't have someone holding your hand all the time. There's uh, there's not a team of you know eight or nine. There's no section commander. There's no lance corporal. There's no sergeant. There's you, you, a lot of the time if you're in the engine room down the bottom and something goes wrong, well, or if you're the medic, something goes wrong, you're the one. You just get it. So I think um, it navy a lot of those roles are a little bit more autonomous, and you're going to have you have to have that kind of a little bit more maturity about you to be able to handle that kind of uh, role. And you went on to deploy with the navy in 2004 on border security operations. Tell us a bit about that, and and perhaps how that deployment, understandably, would have been very different from going to Timor. You know, what were the main differences and what were the standouts in terms of your memories from that time? Yes, well, the operational tempos obviously wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't uh, quite what it was in East Timor. Patrolling around the northern parts of Australia on uh, HMS Newcastle, it was an interesting experience. I was, obviously, they knew that my background, the army, so of course I became part of the boarding party. You know, I was a medic with a, with a pistol, which was pretty cool, and training to um, be part of that that boarding party was um was pretty special that, that there was a good group of people every day we'd be doing some training and what have you some scenarios the army come on board uh, so there was a there was a, a platoon of uh, i think one RER soldiers come on board we did not intercept any any boats uh, whilst i was uh, on operations so the tempo was kind of we did sort of woke up and did the same thing every day boarding party training so yeah no it was um wasn't quite intense as the east timor experience yeah What's it like, though, being at sea? I mean, for people listening to this edition of Life on the Line that have not got Navy experience and perhaps have never spent a long time away on a ship, what is it like? It's very monotonous. I can't speak for other uh, uh, rates uh, on board, but as, as a medic, we had a bit of time. We had uh, you know, we had sick parade a couple of times a day and um, we had cafe duties and what have you. So I was able to go to the gym, you know, sit up on the upper decks and, and just... Um, you know, look out over the water and it is quite peaceful, especially when you get out of that uh, horrible water in the Southern Ocean where, you know, no upper deck time, it's, uh, it's all bunker down and um, uh, make sure that uh, you know, everything's secure. But uh, when you're cruising around in the, in the Northern Australian waters, it's very, very peaceful. In fact, uh, I think I recall the captain uh, doing a lot of fishing in my time. He used to catch some big fish, I remember. In the calmer waters, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite enjoyable. And what was the longest period that you were away at sea for? Because this is something else I think that people don't appreciate about serving in the Royal Australian Navy and indeed navies throughout the world is you can be away from your family and you can be away from dry land for a very long time. I would say it would have been uh, two months we're away from home, a month we're on um, on operations and the other month we're on basically on exercise. So that exercise was very interesting. Uh, I've never been part of that where um, no upper decks, uh, you go on to a um, different kind of watch uh, routine for a week uh, you don't see sun so it's red light down below and uh, you go into a different kind of routine and you don't go you don't see sunlight for a week and you're part of uh, you know you're part of an exercise group where you're doing maneuvers and things with other navies and what have you but yeah that that was an interesting time not seeing sun for a week how did that affect you i was glad to uh yeah i glad to pull into uh, garden island on the friday that's for sure now tell us also about your sporting achievements while you're in the ADF because you were very involved in um, Aussie rules football weren't you? I did play a few seasons uh, with the Navy yeah the Navy national team yeah I'd say uh, well I come out of that with a 
you know, a couple of injuries, but that uh, particular experience has got some wonderful mates that I made playing football for the Navy, and um, they'll be, you know, lifelong friends. Yeah, and sharing, um, you know, particular beating the Army was, um, you know, a big highlight, obviously, coming from the Army, and beating the Army was uh, pretty cool for me. Why is it that sport is such an integral part of culture within the Australian Defence Force? Because there are some people within the ADF that sport ends up becoming a primary focus for them, doesn't it? It's all about kind of teamwork, isn't it? So, you know, how do you fit in? Everyone's got to be part of a team, whatever unit you're in. So it just transfers over. And I think what you can learn from the team sports, you can bring back to your unit and what you can, and you can take stuff from your unit to the football field and it just works, you know, they go just perfectly together. Now you decided to discharge from the ADF. Tell us a bit about the decision-making process that led you to that point and how indeed then sports remained part of your life even when you left. Yeah, I think 10 years was uh, enough for me uh, in the military, probably time to come back to Adelaide. I was probably focused on a fitness kind of career in some way or another. And when I did come back to Adelaide, I was just living up near um, Norwood Oval when I went in there and inquired about being part of their medical team. And um, yeah, the football operations manager said, would I be interested in uh, the fitness coaching job? And of course, uh, you know, being from Adelaide and you know, knowing that Norwood is almighty football club here in South Australia, uh, of course, I was said yes. And I was very lucky to stay there for four years. I say to a lot of people that transition out of the ADF through Norwood Football Club was, I look back at it now, and only now that I do appreciate how great it was for me. Obviously going into a, into a civilian you know, environment, but there's discipline, there's a rank structure, there's fitness involved. The group of guys, you know, like you get sort of 18 to 32, which is a very similar kind of military, kind of infantry age group, doing all the very similar things that the infantrymen do, as you can imagine. I just treasure that four-year period there's some you know closest friends there as well so yeah I cherish that uh, that four years at Norwood Football Club as well. Now you mentioned how going into football and working in sport set you up for success in terms of transition but what about the skills that you're able to transfer across from what you would learned in the Australian Defence Force to then being in the civilian world how did that work for you? How to develop you know functioning teams was one thing that was really important for me how does discipline and how does being an integral part of a team bring success to a football club? So different, I guess, the military, there's no kind of grand final, there's no one wins. So to have that kind of focus as at, at, the, at the end, to be able to drive people to be the best teammate, to be the most disciplined, to follow the team rules, to be a good team player, you do those things really well and then the success comes at the end. So for me, to be able to teach that to those guys and then a success did come at the end, whereas in the military, you can be very, very good at those things and still there's no kind of, you know, no one's winning at the end, there's no outcome. That's one thing that I try to instill into the football club is that you put all those things in place that the military do and then at the end, success will just come to you. And it did, they, you know, Nord won what premiership in 2012, 13 and 14. So I think, you know, I'm quite proud of being able to set the wheels in motion for that and create a culture at the football club that kind of military type mindset was able to breed success there. Why then did you decide to move on from sports to then moving back into your, your other expertise, which was being a medic? How did that shift came about in your civilian life after being in the ADF? Well, I had the opportunity to 
we moved to Western Australia at the start of 2012 and I had the opportunity to work in mining exploration as a paramedic and to leave football. I'd thought I'd probably achieved what I wanted to set out in football and it was maybe time to move on after four years. So I think going back into my paramedic role uh, that I did when I was in the Navy seemed like a bit of a natural thing to do. Get out and see a bit of Australia as well. So I was up in the you know remote areas of you know Western Australia in the Pilbara with the Fortescue Medals as um, as a exploration paramedic. And yeah, what a great experience that was. And that kind of just set me up for uh, the rest of my career as a paramedic um, in the in the mining and oil and gas industry. And throughout this time and. This is one of the reasons why we're doing today's interview at the Torrance Parade Grounds. You never forgot your friends, colleagues, mates in the Australian Defence Force though, and the importance of looking after veterans was always a central focus for you. Tell us a bit about why that remained such a focus for you. And indeed, it is symbolic that we're doing the interview in this environment here today, which is a place in South Australia, which is seen very much as the, the heart of the city's commemorations to some degree. Not far from here, we've got the National War Memorial on North Terrace. We've also got the Anzac Memorial Walk. Why is it that caring for veterans and that respect for people who've served before us and indeed who are still serving today, why has that remained such a central part of your life? Uh, well, I'm immensely proud of being previous member of the ADF and being a veteran. I'm very proud of being part of that community. It's a very much, you know, a very tight community. Everyone cares for each other, respects each other, looks out for each other. And when I see that a lot of uh, people, veterans, leaving the ADF really struggling uh, coming home from Afghanistan and trying to reintegrate back into society after they've served their time or what have you. It was just heartbreaking to see so many people suffering mental health issues and I just sort of felt like I had to do something. And part of the work you've been doing has been setting up the National Walk for a Veteran initiative. What is that initiative and, and how did you go about setting it up and, and what does it stand for? Yeah, so I guess um, there's two parts to it. It's um, it's just mates getting together and just going for a walk and having a chat and you know basically looking after each other and raising a few dollars and giving it to where it needs to go. The other part was um, I felt with the Anzac Day, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I felt there was a, a sense in the community that people wanted to connect with veterans and hear about their story and support them in more of a way than just commemorating on Anzac Day. So the walk was set up to basically bring the community and veterans together whilst giving veterans an opportunity to reconnect with their friends and their friends' families. And it's a real inclusive kind of um, event. We try and encourage everyone to come and share their stories and be part of it. What we've added to it is we've added uh, an emergency services community element to it as well. I've worked with uh, the South Australian Metropolitan Fire Service for 12 months previously and those guys and girls uh, have exactly the same mindset as our ADF but they what they do is they help on a domestic level they help obviously ambulance fire and police and I think having them become part of this this event has just just strengthened the bonds between veterans and emergency services and I think if, as you can see probably around the country that those two groups are really kind of forging together a, a lot more as previously they probably didn't. I think people can understand that, you know, the, the, the mindset and the, the characters are all very much similar. You say about the importance of storytelling and the fact the public want to be able to engage 
with people from a service background to understand their stories and, and really have that sense of connection with, with what people who have served our country have contributed. What kinds of stories have you come across that you feel really should be told and that perhaps, you know, have come to light as a result of your walk for a veteran initiative? As so many people have come up to me, civilians have come up to me at the end of various walks and said, I was just talking with a guy who was in, I can't remember what unit it was, they say, it was, he was in the army. He told me this story and I just couldn't believe it. And we talked for two hours along the beach or it was in the Adelaide Hills. And so that's happening you know, that's just one story. This is happening right across, you know, the walk area. Every year, uh, this is happening. I got a real sense of how important it was for community to actually let veterans know how proud they are of them. It was end of the, probably the second walk, and this guy at the bar just broke down crying, this old Vietnam veteran. Apparently, he's as tough as nails, and he just broke down and cried, and someone said, what's wrong? And he goes, I've never heard anyone say they're proud of me for my service before. And I think this, this is just a wonderful opportunity. It gives you what, the walk's like 10 hours and it just gives everyone a chance to come together. You know, so a veteran can, they've gone to Afghanistan and you talk to a, you know, a firefighter that's pulled people out of a building or, or a car accident. And, you know, just, they can share those kind of similar stories. I know that they're not exactly the same and it's probably good that they're not. So you can kind of gauge where each other come from. You kind of come from a similar space, but not exactly the same story. So it's, it's very interesting to be able to kind of share each other's kind of uh, histories. And what is it, do you think, about walking and walking shoulder to shoulder that actually allows those stories to be told? Is there something about that particular way of communicating that perhaps facilitates this process that you're speaking about? No one's in a hurry. There's people, you know, that do kind of uh, endurance events, they seek them out. And when we put 40 kilometre walk on the, on the event, you get kind of these people that want to do it as fast as possible. And we kind of have to you know, stress every year that this is not a race. This is about just enjoying the day, about just walk along with with your friends, make some new friends, but this is not a race. This is about, you know, spending time with people that you might not know, listening to their stories, and, and maybe leaving the day with a little bit of a different perspective on, you know, what, what our military people have had to do and what they now suffer from because of that. And coming to this place, to the Torrance Parade Ground, to the Memorial Precincts, which does have such significance and meaning for so many South Australians, what's your experience of being here? What does this place mean for you? Yeah, well, I guess it's um, you know, it's the home of veterans in South Australia. So, you know, as I said, as as a proud military person, this is kind of our spiritual home, I suppose, with the fantastic new um, Remembrance Walk. Wow, that's incredible. And with the National War Memorial, so you can go from the War Memorial down the walk to the Tor Torrance Parade Ground and everything. It's just so much history. There's so much pride, um, you know, for a veteran. That's just a wonderful place for us. And just tell us, you will have your next Walk for a Veteran event in August. It's going to be held in South Australia. It's going to be held in Mount Crawford Forest. Will you be walking? Yes. So that's one thing that I've uh, done. So this is year six. The first year was three of us, and of course all three of us did it. But now we've got a we're a full sort of charity, and we've got a committee. And each year they plead with me, "You need to help because we just get so so busy now on the day." I think mean, this year we'll have five or six hundred walkers, so they plead with me not to walk and to help. But uh, I say, no, no, my job is to get out there and walk and talk to people and mingle around and see how people are going and try facilitate any kind of uh, conversations that I can. And but that's what I do. I, I try and just get out and talk to people and listen to other people's stories as well. Now for people listening to today's Life on the Line, you've shared your story, 
they obviously have tuned in because they're interested in hearing stories such as yours and others who've also served. What would you like them to take away from having listened to today's podcast? A lot of us have this understanding of when you sign on the uh, on the line when you enrol. So when you enlist in the ADF, that uh, basically you're signing a, a blank check. I was very lucky not no one actually cashed that in, and I was lucky to discharge med class one. But a lot of my mates, uh, I was the. the that, that check was uh, cashed and um, yeah, they didn't uh, come out uh, of, the, of the ADF in the same state as when they went in, which is uh, quite, uh, you know, it's quite sad. But what's even sadder is that, um, you know, potentially they're not looked after in the best way possible. So we need to think about how can we look after our veterans a little bit better. They've obviously put their life on the line for, for their country, and I think their country could probably look after them a little bit better. Chad McLaren, thank you very much for sharing your story with us today and for all you are doing to care for veterans in our community. Sharon, thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Life on the Line. I'm Sharon Maskeldare. You can find us online at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at LOTLpod on Twitter and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget.